while the world was distracted by COVID-19. Chinese fishing fleets descended on the outskirts of the Galapagos Marine Park, and it caught the attention of the world. China's 265-strong fishing fleet stretches for miles across the horizon, with an estimated 26 million hooks hanging overboard. The boats have been nicknamed the Great Wall of China by islanders of the Galapagos. Eradicating every bit of sea life laying in their path, the fleet of vessels, which can be seen by satellite, span 300 miles, almost double the length of the Galapagos archipelago itself. Among them is the 450-foot-long Hai Fang. Owned by the China National Fisheries Corporation, it is one of the fleet's bottom trawlers and longliners. Fleets can spend years on the ocean due to so-called transshipment, where vessels meet at sea to transfer fish or crew. Dozens of deckhands are aboard each one, helping not only to sail, but to work the huge fridges and processing equipment. The vessels use long-line and industrial fishing systems that do not differentiate between species. The fishing vessels were claiming to target squid, but night and day, the vessels ransack the seabed, scooping up and setting long lines that catch not only sharks, turtles and birds, but many other species. A study by Florida International University, published earlier this year, traced the vast majority of Hong Kong's shark fins back to the eastern Pacific, in an area that includes the Galapagos Islands. The real heartbreak and severity of the situation came when a whale shark named Hope was given a GPS tracker by conservationists last year, and recently vanished. It was last recorded in an area where the fishing fleet was operating, and travelling 18 knots, which is faster than a whale shark can swim, but about the speed of a fishing vessel. An example of the claim these fishing vessels do not target sharks comes from an incident three years ago when a single vessel was intercepted straying into the protected waters around the Galapagos and 300 tonnes of refrigerated scalloped hammerhead shark fins were found on board. In addition to fishing, plastic pollution is a huge issue. The fleet may be far out to sea but the impact is increasingly visible on beaches where plastic bottles bearing Chinese writing and discarded by fishermen come ashore by the hundreds every day. China's president is boosting the industry by claiming developing nation status for China within the World Trade Organization. By doing so, the state has been able to subsidize its fishing fleet. China pays $4 billion US dollars in subsidies annually to its fisheries sector. Islanders accuse the government of Ecuador, the nation that the Galapagos belongs to, of failing to do enough to tackle the problem. A few half-hearted complaints have been shrugged off by Beijing, but as the fleet operates in international waters, just outside the Galapagos exclusive economic zone, where there are no laws regulating fishing, Ecuador's options are limited. However, critics suspect another consideration in the form of infrastructure loans that China has poured into Ecuador as part of its Belt and Road Initiative and to massively increase Beijing's power and influence around the world. This is a perfect example of what will ruin the oceans, not the Chinese fishing fleets, but our inability to stop them when government and money is involved. In China, experts say there is no danger of overfishing near the Galapagos. Wang Yamin, an expert on fishing at Shandong University, said there is no danger of overfishing in the region. He claims a flotilla of 260 boats should not be concerning because there are really very large fish stocks there. He said the excitement over fishing in Ecuador has been overblown by the media, claiming China has no real conflicts of interest with Ecuador 
because Ecuador rarely fishes in international waters, adding that the proposed expanded protection zone is nonsense. An interesting response from China, which makes us wonder why they are so far from home. Could it be because their fishing practices have wiped out their local waters, forcing them to travel elsewhere to fill their insatiable greed for seafood? Jeff LeBlanc is a senior advisor within the government of Ecuador. He states that a 400-year-old concept of the oceans being free to all has left our sea open to destruction. During this podcast, we will cover not only some of the things that occur in the open seas at the hands of industrial fishing vessels, but the laws that need to be changed and enforced to end it. Jeff, or should I say good afternoon? <laughs> yeah, it's about 4.45 here right now. Okay, and from the way that you just said that, I can tell that you are full-blown Canadian living overseas. <laughs> <laughs> Give me a, like, for our viewers, explain to me what you're doing in Ecuador and, and what your actual job is. Great. Well, I am the founder of Mare Nostrum, a ocean conservation foundation, but I'm also a senior advisor within the government of Ecuador. So I advise the Minister of Production, Foreign Trade, Investments and Fisheries, um, which means, you know, we have to look at a lot of, you know, different issues, you know, specifically like we're going to discuss today. Um, related to um, the Chinese fishing fleets and other um, interesting topics. Amazing. Um, So, yeah, obviously being part of the Ecuadorian government is the biggest issue that's coming up lately. I mean, the the thing that kind of went viral for the first time ever was this issue of the Chinese fishing fleet uh, that was just outside the Galapagos waters. And one of the first things that I was super shocked to hear is that this is not a new thing. This is actually a common occurrence. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there's been, well, first I should say that, you know, the fleet that was outside of the Galapagos wasn't, you know, completely made up of Chinese vessels. There were some other countries that were a part of it, but it was, yeah, for the most part, a a Chinese fleet. And what we've seen, you know, in recent years is that they have different types of fleets. This particular fleet that was here last time was mostly made up of squid vessels, uh, but there have been instances where the fleet has been primarily longline uh, boats, and those have been particularly concerning given that, you know, you have 100 hooks uh, that can pretty much pick up any, anything from, you know, sharks to sea turtles to whatever it grabs. And you said that there's other countries involved. I mean, it's very common for people to just go straight to China and all the attention was on China, but they're not the only kind of nation that is sending boats to those rich waters, are they? Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, there's a lot of countries out there that are providing subsidies uh, so that their uh, vessels can fish in, in distant waters. And really, I think that if we, you know, before getting into the specific case of the Galapagos, you know, it's important to look at what are some of the reasons behind these distant water fishing fleets? And, you know, it really is only feasible because many governments 
provide sizable fuel subsidies to vessel owners. And unfortunately, we often see this type of support coming from countries that have already depleted fish stocks within their own national waters or throughout their region, which is why they need to set their sights on other parts of the world, you know, areas that are often known for having a wide array of biodiversity, such as the Galapagos. I think the, right. the sad yeah, and the sad thing is there's not much we can do to stop this type of activity when it's on the high seas because the law of the sea is still in desperate need of reform. Despite many attempts that have been made, international law continues to cling on to age-old principles that are no longer practical, with the freedom of fishing being at the top of the list. So that was another really interesting thing, because at the time when I was pushing out images just on Instagram, for example, of the fishing fleet in the Galapagos, and everybody was like, what can we do? This is horrible. And then you have to explain to people, this isn't actually illegal. And when you look at the Google Maps of these vessels, then they were like, I know they're not all China, but they were labeled in the media as like the Great Wall of China of the fishing fleet, because it literally carved around just like perfectly around the line where the marine park ends or the exclusion zone ends and then the boats were just outside of that basically right exactly where they needed to be to be able to fish but still be legally there so they're not actually doing anything illegal yes well yes and no because there have been certain reports um which uh, are, are particularly troubling because there's evidence that some of these vessels may be turning off their, their signals and becoming dark vessels. Uh, so that is one of the concerns that we have right now, because if they do that, you know, a country such as Ecuador that has limited resources, uh, it's very difficult for us to patrol and monitor our own national waters. So if they do turn off their, their, sign their signals, they can potentially enter our exclusive economic zone and, and fish within our national waters. But in any meaningful sense, I mean, at the end of the day, it really doesn't make much of a difference if vessels are just outside our exclusive economic zone or within it, because sharks and other migratory species are constantly moving in and out of our waters. You know, they know no boundaries, and we definitely need to find more ways of protecting the high seas if we're going to give migratory species uh, a chance. So at the end of the day, it does really come down to legislation. And I'm sure that you are familiar with the crazy story about the whale shark Hope, who was tagged. Um, and then basically the tag was recorded traveling faster than a whale shark can swim and then disappeared. And its last ping location was heading towards this fishing fleet. Um, well, I'm not sure if it was this particular fleet, but there was another fleet that I think it may have crossed paths with. And yeah, the, the situation with Hope, it, it hit particularly close to home just because I had the opportunity to accompany Jonathan Green and Alex Hearn and other members of the Whale Shark Project to study whale sharks at Darwin and Wolf Islands, um, which are two of the islands that are quite far out in the Galapagos. And, and yeah, you're absolutely right. If you look at the satellite data, it's clear that Esperanza crossed paths with a distant water fishing fleet and lost its signal. Now, we can't say for certain that a fishing vessel picked up Esperanza because tags can often fall off or have inaccurate readings, but it's highly likely that is what happened. And of course, there is the theory that you just mentioned where it was traveling at the same speed as a, as a fishing vessel. So there's a lot of evidence pointing in that direction. And um, yeah, it's, it's quite sad. And imagine, I mean, on the particular visit that I had to Darwin and Wolf, we tagged 10 whale sharks in total, 
Some of them we saw go directly to Cocos Islands and others went in different directions. But you can imagine if, you know, some of the whale sharks that we're tagging are getting picked up. I mean, just how many are actually getting picked up in um, is quite concerning. Of course. And I think that it's, it's also concerning because it's something that people just don't recognize still happens. And people always see the whale sharks as these like beautiful symbol of a hopeful tourism story in a country like the Philippines, but they don't realize that they are very much so still becoming victims to fishing practices. And it is crazy that we don't know for sure what happened, but that evidence was just like a little bit gut-wrenching to read. Um, And exactly like you said, I was reading about a man who was tracking the fleet individually, and he said he could see over 100 vessels, but we know that there's more, so they're switching off their tracking and operating illegally potentially. So it's a real crazy situation. And, of course, a country like Ecuador up against a country like China with, like you said, subsidizing the fishing fleet, putting so much money, attention and effort into their fishing, has all this power. There's a lot of talk about not corruption, but potential bullying and things like China contributing to a lot of infrastructure in Ecuador and that perhaps having, making it difficult for the government to do anything about these fishing practices. What's your thought on that? Well, you're absolutely right in the sense that there is a lot, there's a very close relationship between Ecuador and China. I mean, it's one of the countries, um, one of our main trading partners, and we have a lot of debt with China as well. But if you look back in, in 2017, you know, the incident where one vessel was caught within our exclusive economic zone, uh, Ecuador actually you know, did everything in its power to to throw the book at China. And I'm really glad that it happened. The vessel that was caught in our exclusive economic zone had over 6,600 sharks on board, many of them endangered species, including hammerhead sharks and also a whale shark. So despite, you know, the close relationship that Ecuador has with China, the debt and um, all of the things that you just mentioned, um, I do know that we will enforce the laws to the fullest if um, if we need to. Which is really comforting and, and really quite amazing. So then it comes down to the issue, as you said, is actually the laws and the legislation that needs to be changed to stop this kind of thing from happening. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to tell you a little bit as well um, about some of our plans in dealing with distant water fleets, because. Of course, the vessel that was caught in our exclusive economic zone in 2017, it was easy for us to arrest and prosecute um, those responsible. But like we said, for anything that is happening on the high seas, it is outside of our jurisdiction. And we need to think of more creative ways um, to stopping this type of activity. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of a lot of water to kind of manage and look out for as well a lot of ocean to patrol and i know that ecuador might not have the resources to do so especially when you've got fleets of more than 200 vessels coming fish yeah i know definitely i mean it's like like we said uh ecuador is a country that has limited resources we need to use those resources to the best of our ability when it comes to the dark vessels i'm i'm very excited that our ministry of defense is going to start receiving uh, cooperation from the government of Canada to help detect those vessels. So that will be a major 
improvement to find out if any vessels enter our exclusive economic zone. But yeah, in general, it's still a a challenge, primarily because of what I told you in, in terms of the law of the sea. I mean, over 400 years have passed since Hugo Grotius published his dissertation, The Freedom of the Seas, where he claimed the sea was common property of all. And that principle still exists today. Of course, in you know 1608, it made sense because there was no industrial fishing technology and we didn't have these large coordinated fleets. But now we're experiencing what some refer to as the tragedy of the commons, where we are sharing a common resource and it's become a race to see who can <laughs> take it the fastest. Um, so, yeah, in my opinion, government subsidies and a lack of regulation would be at the top of the list. Uh, but of course, there are a number of other contributing factors to take into account, including transshipments at sea, open water suppliers, etc. So if we're ever going to stop uh, distant water fishing fleets, we need to pick the right battles and find creative ways to eliminate these contributing factors. So did you, you said 400 years old, that law is. Well, this wasn't a law, but this is how the law of the sea started to become customary international law. So Hugo Grotius wrote his dissertation yeah, in 1608, and he was the very first person to write about how there's the freedom of fishing, the freedom of, um, of travel. There was, I think, four or five things that he mentioned. And what is interesting is that, yeah, the high seas has always been completely open um, since, yeah, since, since the dawn of <laughs> time, I guess. Which is crazy because now, like you said, we have these fleets that are capable of travel crossing oceans. We have transshipping and we have not only all this, but economies and small kind of communities like in Indonesia and in the Galapagos that rely so heavily on the marine life surrounds them, not only to sustain a lot of their diet, but for things like tourism. So we've basically just opened the oceans up to be taken by anybody that has the power and means to do so, which puts those lesser developed communities that rely on the ocean really in a, in a difficult position. Yeah, I know exactly. I mean, it goes back to that phrase I mentioned earlier, the tragedy of the commons. It's often thrown around to you know, describe what's happening. We have this, these shared resources within the high seas and countries um, are in a race to to deplete those resources. They want to take them for their own personal gain. But clearly, the way that fish stocks are depleting, you know, there's, this can only go on for so long. So my, you know, personal hope is that a new high seas treaty will be signed sooner than later. Uh, I know that there's been some major delays from the, the pandemic, but there's been a lot of great work behind the scenes being done where more and more countries are you know, making a commitment for 30 by 30 uh, to protect 30% of the ocean by 2030. So hopefully, uh, when the negotiations start up again, we will see some some real movement and hopefully a new high seas treaty that will have more teeth uh, than any of its predecessors. Which sounds like that's exactly what we need right now. And that's really amazing. Um, what What made Canada want to come on board with the laws in Ecuador and helping to enforce them? Um, I mean, that's a good question. We received quite a bit of international cooperation from Canada. Uh, we also received a lot of cooperation from from other countries, the United States, South Korea. Um, but in this particular case, I think it was because uh, a company in Canada had 
really good technology to detect these particular vessels. So our embassy set up a lot of meetings directly with our Ministry of Defense. And from what I understand, the technology is supposed to come in force um, any time now. It was supposed to be in January 2001. So I'm going to have to check in to see exactly when um, it will be applied. That's really amazing. And I think for people listening and for people in the dive industry and people that love sharks, the Galapagos has always been seen as this like pinnacle of shark diving. Like it is the place, the schooling hammerheads, the amazing wildlife. Like it's known for nothing more than just being a protected reserve. Do you have a different idea of reality for the Galapagos? How would you explain it to people that need to hear what's actually going on there? Well, yeah, when it comes to the Galapagos, um, well, some, yeah, some people describe it as the sharkiest place in the world. And I think if you go to places like Darwin and Wolf, um, you will see that. But just because a lot of species are protected in the Galapagos and there's large congregations doesn't mean that a lot of these species are, you know, without danger. And I think, you know, some of the most iconic species that we have in the Galapagos, the scalloped hammerhead, the whale shark, both of those species are, are critically endangered. And it goes back to what I said before. If we create strong measures here in Ecuador in our national waters, um, it doesn't do any good if these species end up traveling into uh, you know, the waters of other countries where there's less protection or going out into the high seas where really there's not much protection at all. So. We definitely have a responsibility to protect the Galapagos as much as we can. And there are a lot of uh, domestic initiatives that are on the table. One is the possible expansion of the Galapagos Marine Reserve. And if that goes forward, yeah, that could be a, a major improvement and, and, and a major win for conservation. But again, it doesn't do anything to solve the problem of the high seas. Um, another particular initiative that you may have heard of is uh, protecting the corridor between the Galapagos and the Cocos and Cocos Islands. Uh, that too could be a major environmental win because that would actually follow this swimway where a lot of migratory species um, go back and forth or or use. So so yeah, I think that for us here in Ecuador, we need to take special care of the Galapagos not only for conservation reasons, but also, you know, we need to think of the um, impact that a lot of these species have on the economy as well. They bring in tourists from all around the world, scuba divers. And if we can find a way to, you know, slow down these distant water fishing fleets, then we'll be in much better shape. So when we talk about the issues in the Galapagos and the fishing fleet that rocked up and we need to keep in mind that this is something that's common and happens outside of just when we see it on the media and this is a distant water fishing fleet issue, which really puts it into perspective. Um, and for people listening that obviously want to have as much impact as you have had in their life, what did you actually study? Like, what's your field? Ah, well, I actually studied uh, law. My specialty, when I did my master's, I studied international law. And I focused on the law of the sea. So that's really what got me into a lot of these issues. And coming from the east coast of Canada, you may have heard of 
the cod industry that we used to have uh, on the east coast of Canada, which completely collapsed uh, from overfishing. It was one of the most bountiful fisheries in the world. And, you know, through a mixture of um, vessels from, from abroad, also Canadian vessels, etc., the cod fishery completely collapsed. So I got to see, you know, firsthand, you know, the stories back home of, of what had happened. And that's really what kind of motivated me to get involved in issues of IUU fishing and overfishing in general. Amazing. And I think it's, it's really cool because there's so many people studying marine biology, but then there's so many people needed on the side of law because legislation is such a huge part of protection in the ocean. So I think that's really, really like a cool thing to, to highlight to people. Um, you may not know the question this one, but it's insane to look at satellite images of these boats and how many boats there are and where they're sitting in relation to dive sites that we see on TV. Can anybody get near them in real life? Has anybody attempted to film what they're doing? Um, like specifically for the, the case in the Galapagos? Yes. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I haven't seen any close-up images. I think it's sometimes a, a bit of a challenge. We've seen a lot of images from afar of the lights. I guess, uh, from the last fleet, because they use these bright lights for fishing squid. Um, but I don't know. Um, I know that they've been very close to the exclusive economic zone. Uh, so that's why we've had a good image from uh, vessels that, are, that have taken pictures from within our exclusive economic zone. But it really is a challenge to, you know, provide any sort of uh, direct visuals of what's going on inside the uh, or on the boats and that's why uh, what we want to do is to submit certain proposals well actually we've already submitted these proposals uh, to the south pacific rfmo and if they're approved um, vessels would be required to have visual observers or onboard observers um, on all of these squid vessels Right, so that would mean that they wouldn't be able to catch or trade in protected species. They wouldn't be able to uh, target things, set long lines in illegal areas or cut the fins off sharks and throw them back. Like That would mean that some laws they're ignoring are actually going to be enforced. Yeah, exactly. I mean, here's my take on potential solutions. So, of course, we are all hoping that a new high seas treaty is signed in the not-so-distant future, but I don't see that being an immediate solution. You know, for one, it's a treaty and the countries that don't want to sign up to this treaty don't have to. They can continue to take advantage of the loopholes within the current law of the sea. And two, the pandemic has caused a major delay, as I had mentioned in the negotiations. Uh, so we're a bit concerned about that. But getting back to like the specific situation of the Galapagos, I truly believe the best solution for the time being lies within the South Pacific Regional Fisheries Management Organization. Within this RFMO, there are 15 members. You have Ecuador, Chile, Peru, New Zealand, China, Russia, etc., etc. <laughs> uh, and in order for new measures to be created, you need the support of 75% of the members. Now, that may seem like a lot, but there are a number of RFMOs that require complete consensus. And you can imagine how frustrating that must be when all it takes is one country to vote a certain way and that stops 
the rest of the members from moving forward with what they wanted. But with the South Pacific RFMO, we don't need complete consensus, which provides an incredible opportunity to pass specific measures that could put an end, at least in the South Pacific, to excessive overfishing from these distant water fleets. And I mentioned one of the proposals being the onboard observers, um, which, like you said, to answer your question, this could help us identify you know, exactly what is, what is happening on board these vessels. But the other proposal that we've submitted is to end all transshipments at sea. And really, in my opinion, that could be the number one proposal to completely put an end to this type of activity. Because we know that it's a lot harder for us to influence government subsidies. Uh, but if we can get some of these proposals through within the South Pacific RFMO, uh, you could potentially see an end to distant water fishing fleets throughout the entire South Pacific. Amazing. And so not everybody's familiar with transshipping, so I'll just explain it briefly. Then I, I've actually witnessed it in West Africa. I witnessed boats catching sharks locally, then putting tags on them saying product of Spain and then shipping them from there. And it was just this crazy thing to think that it happens so often. So it essentially means as well that these vessels can stay out there and have products be taken back, basically. Can you give me like a a better kind of brief idea of what transshipment is. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right, Madison. And when it comes to transshipments uh, at sea, the FAO has cons- consistently called on states to improve monitoring and control of transshipping uh, or to prohibit it altogether. And I completely agree with prohibiting it altogether because, you know, there is no way a fleet of 270 vessels can log 73,000 hours of fishing in just one month if transshipments at sea are prohibited, even if they are receiving those subsidies. So to answer your question, by transferring, you know, catch from multiple boats to large reefers, these fishing boats can stay outside the Galapagos or wherever they would like to fish for long periods of time because they're reducing fuel costs and they're constantly creating space to bring in more catch. Transshipments, as you know, they also open the door to more drug smuggling, forced labor, and other human rights infractions. So I think the arguments for getting rid of transshipments at sea altogether are quite strong. Unfortunately, at the present time, you know, that needs to be done through each regional fisheries management organization or through each individual flag state. But I am hoping, again, that a new high seas treaty will take the issue of transshipments at sea very seriously. But until that time, you know, for Ecuador anyway, if we can get these proposals through the South Pacific RFMO, then it could at least stop in the South Pacific. It definitely sounds like something that should have been addressed several times already. Like what a crazy law and a crazy thing that can happen for us to be able to to do that. It, it really does make the ocean like open game to anybody to come and take. And, and it really is hard to enforce any protected species laws when you can do such a thing. No, you're absolutely right. and. I mean, in addition, like if you look at, if you put transshipments on one side, another proposal that could be submitted to the South Pacific RFMO or other RFMOs pertains to open water suppliers, you know, specifically refueling at sea. Um, refueling at sea should definitely be limited to very specific situations. For example, if there is a potential emergency, because refueling at sea also allows these distant water fleets to continue fishing for months or even years without going to port. And it's also a major 
pollution risks. So, um, no, you're 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 exactly right, Madison. There's so many things that need to be uh, remedied when it comes to the high seas, and these are are some of the main issues. That's an amazing way to put it too. And then all you're doing is trying to take basically giant industrial commercial vessels and just make them a little more artisanal, which is probably a really, really great way to tackle the issue. And this is not just the Galapagos, but this happens all over the world. And the sad thing about most of these cases is that the waters that these boats are traveling to usually belong to developing nation whose communities really rely on them, just like the tourism in the Galapagos. So they really do deserve protection. And I really hope that some of those kind of laws go through. And I think it's amazing that you're you're working on them. Um, my one question about this, because even I didn't know about any of this before I kind of saw it, is why do you think this year, or last year, sorry, why do you think that it finally got attention, that this was brought to light within the media and the Galapagos really got kind of shown around the world as this place suffering from the effects of a Chinese fishing fleet coming when it happens all the time. Why do you think it's just now that it's coming to the media? Well, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I know that there was a lot of media attention when we captured that vessel within that vessel within our exclusive economic zone, the one that I mentioned earlier. Um, but I think, you know, there's been a lot of additional attention around the Galapagos. Well, actually if I back up, I, I think the main reason is that we're talking about the Galapagos because this is happening in a number of places around the world. You know, when it comes to squid fishing, China is by far the most dominant country in the world. I believe the country's fleet accounts for 50 to 70 percent of the squid caught in international waters, which in any meaningful sense allows them to control the, the global supply. And I told you as well, you know, the last Chinese fleet, the one that was just here, um we it kind of the tensions came down a little bit once people realized it was a squid fleet because they first assumed it was a long line fishing fleet however uh what many people don't realize is that to catch squid these vessels will typically use these trawling nets stretched between two vessels and that results in many fish and other species being caught and wastefully killed so this technique um does result in a lot of unnecessary bycatch. And I think that once we started to get the word out a little bit more about the negative effects that, that squid fishing can have on marine species, people started to pay a lot more attention to it. So one of the biggest issues we have as well as legislation is awareness. We have so many people that don't even know this kind of stuff happens or we'll look away when it's like, oh, it's okay, it's just a squid vessel when we know that there's actually equally as bad effects. So awareness is another huge thing, which is, I guess, the biggest thing if I was to ask, how can an individual like myself help? I think awareness is probably the biggest thing we can do to contribute. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think we need to keep educating, keep raising awareness. Um, as a citizen, you know, there's Citizens can lobby their government to, to try and end fishing subsidies. That's another way to help. You can also ask your government to support 30 by 30 and a new high seas treaty. That's important. And I also recommend signing petitions which you know, support the ban of shark fins. Uh, for example, my foundation, Mata Nostrum, is supporting the Shark Fin Sales Elimination Act in the United States. It has already passed through Congress, and all we need now is for it to pass in the Senate. 
And what many people may not realize is that by reducing the global demand of shark fins, that too will have a big impact on distant water fishing fleets and therefore you know, help save places like the Galapagos, um, which is often threatened by these types of vessels. Which is a, a huge task, but it's, it's also like you have to target the issue, the consumer, everything. And then I think people still don't understand how big shark fins still are. When I was in Hong Kong a few years ago, I said to one of the scientists there, like, um, you have so many shark fins everywhere, all over the street here. It looks like no one's buying them. And he said, actually, when we go to sample them, because they're doing genetics testing, he said, sometimes they're completely sold out. So it is definitely something that needs our attention and is just still such a hard driving force for a lot of fishing practices all around the world. Um, another interesting topic I want to ask you about is the consumption of shark locally in Ecuador. I mean, we've talked about vessels coming in and fishing and, and doing damage and then taking it elsewhere, but what about the consumption of shark locally? Great. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because you've been such an, an amazing advocate for ending shark finning and the trade of shark fins around the world. It'd be great to get some of your advice as well when it comes to the, the campaigns that you've done in the past. Um, but here in Ecuador, yeah, there's a lot of attention that's always placed on um, the threat of the distant water fishing fleets, on you know, the expansion of the Galapagos Marine Reserve. Uh, but what a lot of people need to understand as well is that we're trying really hard to reduce our internal consumption of shark because uh you know although how do i say although a lot of um shark fins you see in the news that have ended up in hong kong or other places have uh captured worldwide headlines what we really need to focus on is just trying to reduce the internal consumption in in general because a lot of Different towns and cities, especially in the highlands, are consuming shark without knowing that they're consuming shark. They often think that it's corvina or another species. And that's not only a conservation concern, but it's also a concern in terms of health because we know that a lot of these species have high levels of mercury and other toxins. So we finally have teamed up our ministry with the Ministry of Tourism and the Ministry of Environment. Uh, to create a nationwide education campaign to teach everything about the health effects to conservation, um, aspects of conservation, and also the importance of sharks to, to tourism. And by creating different incentives uh, for local fishermen, uh, we're hoping that we can get a lot of fishermen, restaurants, hotels, markets signing up to this campaign, which, is, which we've called Acción Tiburón. And hopefully we'll start to see the, the demand in shark meat uh, go way down. Amazing. It always, it always starts locally. And it's like, it's something that's huge in Australia as well. There's so many people in Australia that want to help sharks and fight for sharks. and They don't realize that we're eating them and they're everywhere. And you can just walk down the street and go to a restaurant and, and see a species that you would have difficulty seeing in the wild. So it's always good to start local and raise that awareness about how important sharks are everywhere else, uh, how important they are to tourism and every economy around tourism and how little that is compared to us eating them. They're definitely one of those animals worth way more alive. Um, as for all the work that you're doing 
Aside from that, on a personal level, as someone who's experienced sharks in the water and whale sharks, do you worry about the vulnerability of these animals? Um, yeah, no, of, of course. I mean, when you get a chance to scuba dive with, with whale sharks and hammerhead sharks, you see that, you know, there's, there's no risk to, to humans. I mean, of course, there's every now and then, um, there, there are some deaths that, that take place, but, you know, for the most part, um, it's really us that need to do a better job at protecting them because at the end of the day, um, they're so important for the entire ecosystem. Every apex predator uh, is important for the ecosystem. And in places you know, like the Galapagos or even along mainland Ecuador, if we start to lose these species, you're going to see other species start to drop off the food chain as well. So, yeah, we're, we're particularly concerned about that. Like you said, um, uh, most shark species that are attractive for scuba diving bring in so much revenue to the country that um, it requires our, our fullest attention. I would love to know, um, on a positive note, a little bit about the fact that there are now nine shark species protected in Ecuador. And I think you said you had something to do with the last two being protected. So tell me about that. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, um, it was kind of the first five that were protected were in the last governments. But when you look at some of the sharks that were protected within that list, um, I think the, they protected the great white shark, which is not even in our waters. So it's almost as though we were, you know, banning the hunting of giraffes here in, <laughs> here in, uh, but, um, the, Sharks that I got to play a big role in uh, the recent prohibition uh, were four hammerhead species. So the four hammerhead species that we have here in our waters and also the oceanic white tip. So out of, the, out of these five species, uh, three of them are critically endangered and two of them have some form of conservation status. And I was shocked when I first learned that these species weren't protected, specifically the hammerhead shark, given it's important to, importance to tourism. Uh, so now, all of these sharks, uh, it is illegal. The, the commercialization and the export of these sharks is 100% illegal, but now we have to work on enforcement. I think it's still a, um, a challenge to enforce the laws that, that were created, so we're going to do whatever we can to focus on on that now, but overall, I'm very happy with with um, with these new measures. It is crazy, isn't it, when you think about the Galapagos and you think about the famous schooling hammerheads, and then you realize they're not even protected. It's insane. And and um, how is how I guess how much is the current situation with the fishing and coronavirus affecting the locals who rely on that that tourism? Yeah, I think that's one of my concerns as well for the Galapagos anyway. They depend, you know, almost 95% on tourism. So when the pandemic hit, um, so many people in the Galapagos had absolutely zero income coming in. They had practically no work. And what a lot of um, people then tried to do is return to other forms of economic activity, specifically 
um, getting involved in, in fishing, um, which concerned us primarily because people wanted to bring back, you know, long lining in the Galapagos Marine Reserve. Uh, this is a decision of the Galapagos Park, but there was a pilot project that I believe is still ongoing with long lining within the Galapagos Marine Reserve. And imagine, I mean, with all of these, you know, incredible species, the critically endangered ones that I mentioned, um, long lining really has no place whatsoever in that area. So I think when it comes to the impact, like when I think when we, we run into these types of pandemics, we definitely need to focus on diversifying the economy of the Galapagos. We need to look at ways where we can provide different forms of employment. I think if the Galapagos can develop better connectivity, it will also create better opportunities for local communities to do distant work. Uh, so there's a lot of things that need to be looked at, and this pandemic has certainly taught us a lot of valuable lessons. That's amazing. Um, if you could, if you could just choose one law, any law, <laughs> to be enforced right here, right now, tomorrow, it's a reality. Ben, you get your wish. What law would you like to see enforced or created? Jeez, I mean, I'll give you two. I mean, I would love for these proposals to go forward. The ones that I mentioned for the South Pacific are promote to end all transshipments at sea and for there to be onboard observers on, on every vessel. But of course, when it comes to international law, we need a, a high seas treaty and something that has teeth, you know, something that will allow us to protect vast areas of the high seas. To me, that is um, what has been needed for over 100 years now. And at least we're starting to, to get there. Amazing. Well, thank you for all of your amazing work. And you and I are going to talk again because you've got some really cool campaigns coming up. And I will put some information in the notes of this podcast, guys, so you can go and check out Jeff's organization and all the amazing work being done. Great. Well, thank you so much, Madison. It was really an honor to chat with you today. And yeah, for future podcasts, I told you I'd love to get you involved in this Thresher Shark campaign. There's over 100,000 thresher sharks being landed on the coast of Ecuador each year, and that's still a, a species that has no protection. So we need to do a, a much better job to get some of these um, reforms done. Of course. Jeff, thank you for being our, our man on the inside, the, the, the legit guy whispering in the government's ear, protect all the sharks. <laughs> no, thank you so much, Madison. It was a pleasure. <laughs>